Chapter 30 of The Worm Ouroboros. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jason Mills. The Worm Ouroboros by E. R. Edison. Chapter 30 Tidings of Melikafkaz. Of news brought unto Garais the king in Carsi out of the south, where the Lord Laxus, lying in the straits with his armada, held the fleet of Demonland prisoned in the Midland Sea. On a night of late summer leaning towards autumn, eight weeks after the sailing of the demons out of Muelva, as is afore it, the Lady Presmira sat before her mirror in Coron's lofty bedchamber in Carsey. The night without was mild and full of stars. Within, yellow flames of candles burning steadily on either side of the mirror, red forth tresses of tinselling brightness in twin glories, or luminous spheres of warmth. In that soft radiance, grains as of golden fire swam and circled, losing themselves on the confines of the gloom, where the massy furniture and the arras and the figured hangings of the bed were but cloudier divisions and congestions of the general dark. Presmira's hair caught the beams, and imprisoned them in a tawny tangle of splendour that swept about her head and shoulders down to the emerald clasps of her girdle. Her eyes resting idly on her own fair image in the shining mirror, she talked light nothings with her woman of the bedchamber, who, plying the comb, stood behind her chair of golden tortoise-shell. Reach me yonder book, nurse, that I may read again the words of that serenade the Lord Grow made for me, the night when first we had tidings from my lord out of Impland of his conquest of that land, and the king did make him king thereof. The old woman gave her the book that was bound in goatskin, chiselled and ornamented by the gilder's art, fitted with clasps of gold, and enriched with little gems, smaragds, and marjorie pearls, inlaid in the panels of its covers. Presmira turned the page and read, you meaner beauties of the night, that poorly satisfy our eyes, more by your number than your light, you common people of the skies, what are you when the moon shall rise? You curious chanters of the wood, that warble forth dame nature's lairs, thinking your passions understood, by your weak accents, what's your prayers, when Philomel her voice shall raise? You violets that first appear, by your pure purple mantles known, like the proud virgins of the year, as if the spring were all your own, what are you when the rose is blown? So when my princess shall be seen, in form and beauty of her mind, by virtue first, then choice a queen, tell me if she were not designed the eclipse and glory of her kind. She abode silent a while. Then in a low sweet voice where all the chords of music seemed to slumber, Three years will be gone next Yuletide, she said, since first I heard that song, and not yet am I grown accustomed to the style of queen. "'Tis pity of my lord Grow," said the nurse. "'Thou thinkest? Mirth sat oftener on your face, O queen, when he was here, and you were used to charm his melancholy, and make a pish of his fantastical humorous forebodings. Oft doubting not his forejudgment, said Presmira, even the while I thripped my fingers at it. But never saw I yet that the lowering thunder hath that partiality of a tyrant, to blast him that faced it, and pass by him that quailed before it. He was most deeply bound servant to your beauty, said the old woman. And yet, she said, viewing her mistress sidelong to see how she would receive it, that were a miss easily made good. She busied herself with the comb a while in silence. After a time she said, O queen, mistress of the hearts of men, there is not a lord in witchland, nor in earth beside, you might not bind your servant with one thread of this hair of yours. 
the likeliest and the goodliest were yours at an eye-glance. The Lady Presmira looked dreamily into her own sea-green eyes imaged in the glass. Then she smiled mockingly, and said, Whom then accountest thou the likeliest and the goodliest man in all the established earth? The old woman smiled. O Queen, answered she, this was the very matter in dispute amongst us at supper only this evening. A pretty disputation, said Presmira. Let me be merry, who was adjudged the fairest and gallantest by your high court of censure. It was not generally determined of, O Queen. Some would have my lord grow. Alack, he is too feminine, said Presmira. Others our lord the king. There is none greater, said Presmira, nor more worshipful. But for an husband, thou shouldst as well wed with a thunderstorm or the hungry sea. Give me some more. Some chose the lord admiral. That, said Presmira, was a nearer stroke. No skipjack, nor soft marmalady courtier, but a brave, tall, gallant gentleman. Ay, but too watery a planet burned at his nativity. He is too like a statua of a man. No, nurse, thou must bring me better than he. The nurse said, True it is, O Queen, that most were of my thinking when I gave him my choice. The King of Demonland. Fie on thee, cried Presmira. Name him not so that was too unmighty to hold that land against our enemies. Folk say it was by foxish arts and practices magical that was spilt on Crothering's side. Folk say it was devils and not horses carried the demons down the mountain at us. They say, cried Presmira, I say to thee, he hath found it apter to his bent to flaunt his crown in Witchland than make him give him the knee in Gaeling. For a true king both knee and heart do truly bow before him. But this one, if he had their knee, t'was in the back side of him he had it, to kick him home again. Fie, madam, said the nurse. Hold thy tongue, nurse, said Presmira. It were good ye were all well whipped for a bunch of silly mares that know not a horse from an ass. The old woman watching her in the glass counted it best to keep silence. Presmira said under her breath, as if talking to herself, I know a man should not have miscarried it thus. The old nurse, that loved not Lord Corrond and his haughty fashions and rough speech and wine-bibbing, and was besides jealous that so rude a stock should wear so rich a jewel as was her mistress, followed not her meaning. After some time the old woman spake softly, and said, You are full of thoughts to-night, madam. Presmira's eyes met hers in the mirror. Why may I not be so, and it likes me? said she. That stony look of the eyes struck like a gong some twenty-year-old memory in the nurse's heart. The little willful maiden, ill to God but good to guide, looking out from that queen's face across the years. She knelt down suddenly and caught her arms about her mistress's waist. Why must you wed then, dear heart? said she, if you were minded to do what likes you. Men love not sad looks in their wives. You may ride a lover on the curb, madam, but once you wed him, tis all t'other way. All his way, madam, and beware of had I wist. Her mistress looked down at her mockingly. I have been wed seven years to-night. I should know these things. And this night, said the nurse, and but an hour till midnight, and yet he sitteth at board. The Lady Presmira leaned back to look again on her own mirrored loveliness. Her proud mouth sweetened to a smile. Wilt thou learn me common women's wisdom? said she, and there was yet more voluptuous sweetness trembling in her voice. I will tell thee a story, as thou hast told them me in the old days in Norvasp, to while me to bed. Hast thou not heard tell how old Duke Hilmenes of Meltrani, among some other fantasies such as appear by night unto many in divers places, had one in likeness of a woman, 
with old face of low and little stature or body, which did scour his pots and pans, and did such things as a maid-servant ought to do, liberally, and without doing of any harm. And by his art he knew this thing should be his servant still, and bring unto him whatsoever he would, so long time as he should be glad of the things it brought him. But this duke, being a foolish man and a greedy, made his familiar bring him at once all the year's seasons, and their several goods and pleasures, and all good things of earth at one time. So as in six months' space, he being sated with these and all good things, and having no good thing remaining unto him to expect or to desire, for very weariness did hang himself. I would never have ta'en me an husband, nurse, and I had not known that I was able to give him every time I would, a new heaven and a new earth, and never the same thing twice. She took the old woman's hands in hers and gathered them to her breast, as if to let them learn, rocked for a minute in the bountiful infinite sweetness of that place, what foolish fears were these. Suddenly Presmira clasped the hands tighter in her own, and shuddered a little. She bent down to whisper in the nurse's ear, I would not wish to die. The world without me should be summer without roses. Carsey without me should be a night without the starshine. Her voice died away like the night breeze in a summer garden. In the silence they heard the dip and wash of oar-blades from the river without. The sentinel's challenge. The answer from the ship. Presmira stood up quickly and went to the window. She could see the ship's dark bulk by the water-gate, and comings and goings, but not clearly. Tidings from the fleet, she said. Put up my hair. And ere that was done came a little page running to her chamber door, and when it was opened to him, stood panting from his running, and said, The king your husband bade me tell you, madam, and pray you go down to him in the great hall. It may be ill news, I fear. Thou fearest, pap-face, said the queen. I'll have thee whipped if thou bringest thy fears to me. Dost know aught? What's the matter? The ship's much battered, O queen. He is closeted with our lord the king, the skipper. None dare speak else. "'Tis feared the High Admiral—' "'Feared!' cried she, swinging round for the nurse to put about her white shoulders her mantle of cendoline and cloth of silver that shimmered at the collar with purple amethysts, and was scented with cedar and galbanum and myrrh. She was forth in the dark corridor, down by the winding marble stair, through the mid-court, hasting to the banquet-hall. The court was full of folk talking, but not certain, not save suspense and wonder, rumour of a great sea-fight in the south a mighty victory won by Laxus upon the demons, Jus and those lords of demonland dead and gone, the captives following with the morning's tide. And here and there, like an undertone to these triumphant tidings, contrary rumours, whispered low, like the hissing of an adder from her shadowy lair. All not well, the Lord Admiral wounded, half his ships lost, the battle doubtful, the demons escaped. So came that lady into the great hall, and there were the lords and captains of the witches, all in a restless quiet of expectation. Duke Corsus lolled forward in his seat down by the cross-bench, his breath stertorous, his small eyes fixed in a drunken stare. On the other side Corrin sat huge and motionless, his elbow propped on the table, his chin in his hand, sombre and silent, staring at the wall. Others gathered in knots, talking in low tones. The Lord Corinius walked up and down behind the cross-bench, his hands clasped behind him, his fingers snapping impatiently at whiles, his heavy jaw held high, his glance high and defiant. Presmira came to Hemming, where he stood among three or four, and touched him on the arm. "'We know nothing, madam,' he said. "'He is with the king.' She came to her lord. "'Thou didst send for me?' 
Corrand looked up at her. Why, so I did, madam. Tidings from the fleet. Maybe somewhat, maybe not. But thou'dst best be here for it. Good tidings or ill, that shaketh not Carsey walls, said she. Suddenly the low buzz of talk was hushed. The king stood in the curtained doorway. They rose up all to meet him, all save Corsus that sat drunk in his chair. The crown of Witchland shed baleful sparkles above the darkness of the dark fortress face of Garais the king. The glitter of his dread eyeballs, the deadly line of his mouth, the square black beard jutting beneath. Like a tower he stood, and behind him in the shadow was the messenger from the fleet, with countenance the colour of wet mortar. The king spake and said, My lords, here's tidings touching the truth whereof I have well satisfied myself, and it importeth the mere perdition of my fleet. There hath been battle off Melikafkaz in the Impland Seas. Just hath sinken our ships, every ship save that which brought the tidings, sunk, with Laxus and all his men that were with him. He paused, then, These be heavy news, he said, and I'll have you bear em in the old Witchland fashion. The heavier hit, the heavier strike again. In the strange, deformed silence came a little gasping cry, and the Lady Sreva fell a-swooning. The king said, Let the kings of Impland and of Demonland attend me. The rest, it is commanded that all do get them to bed of the instant. The Lord Coron said in his lady's ear, as he went by, taking her with his hand about the shoulder, What, lass, if the broth split, the meat remaineth. To bed with thee, and never doubt we'll pay them yet. And he with Corinius followed the king. It was past middle night when the council broke up, and Corrond sought his chamber in the eastern gallery above the inner court. He found his lady sitting yet at the window, watching the false dawn over Pixieland. Dismissing his lamp-bearers that lighted him to bed, he bolted and barred the great iron-studded door. The breadth of his shoulders when he turned filled the shadowy doorway. His head well-nigh touched the lintel. It was hard to read his countenance in the uncertain gloom, where he stood beyond the bright region made by the candlelight but Presmira's eyes could mark how care sat on his brow, and there was in the carriage of his ponderous frame kingliness, and the strength of some strong determination. She stood up, looking up at him as on a mate to whom she could be true, and be true to her own self. Well, she said. The tables are set, said he, without moving. The king hath named me his captain-general in Carsey. Is it come to that? said Presmira. They have hewn a limb from us, answered he. They have wit to know the next stroke should be at the heart. Is it truly so, she said? Eight thousand men? Twice thine army's strength that won implant for us? All drowned? Twas the devilish seamanship of these accursed demons, said Corrand. It appeareth Laxus held the straits, where they must go if ever they should win home again, meaning to fight em in the narrows and so crush em with the weight of ships, as easy as kill flies having by a great odds the bigger strength both in ships and men. They or their part kept the sea without, trying their best to tice him forth, so they might do their sailor tricks in the open. A week or more he withstood it, till of the ninth day, the devil curse him for a fool, wherefore could I not have had patience? Or the ninth morning, weary of inaction, and having wind and tide something in his favour, the Lord Corrand groaned and snapped his fingers contemptuously. Oh, I'll tell thee the tale to-morrow, madam. I'm surfeited with it to-night. The sum is, Laxus drowned, and all that were with him, and just with his whole great armament northward bound for Witchland. And the wide sea's his, and we may expect him any day? 
The wind hangeth easterly. Any day, said Corund. Presmira said, That was well done to rest the command in thee. But what of our qualified young gentleman, who had that office aforetime? Will he play o' these terms? Corund answered, Hungry dogs will eat dirty puddings. I think he'll play, albeit he showed his teeth in the first while. Let him keep his teeth for the demons, said she. This very ship was ta'en, said Corund, and sent home by them in a bravado to tell us what be tid. A stupid, insolent part shall cost em dear, for it hath forewarned us. The skipper had this letter for thee, gave it me monstrous secretly. Presmira took away the wax and opened the letter, and knew the writer of it. She held it out to Corund. Read it to me, my lord. I am tired with watching. I read ill by this flickering candlelight. But he said, I am too poor a scholar, madam. I prithee read it. And in the light of the guttering candles, vexed with an east wind that blew before the dawn, she read this letter, that was conceived in manner following. Unto the right high mighty and doubted princess the Queen of Impland, one that was your servant, but now being both a traitor and a manifold parjured traitor, which heaven above doth abhor, the earth below detest, the sun, moon, and stars be ashamed of, and all creatures do curse and adjudge unworthy of breath and life, do wish only to die your penitent. In heavy sorrow do send you these advisos, which I require your majesty, in humblest manner to ponder well, seeing else your manifest overthrow, and ruin at hand. And albeit in Carsey you rest in security, it is certain you are there as safe as he that hingeth by the leaves of a tree, in the end of autumn, when as the leaves begin to fall. For in this late battle in Malikaf has sea, hath the whole power of Witchland on the sea been beat down and ruined, and the high admiral of our whole navy lost and dead, and the names of the great men of account that were slain at the battle I may not number, nor the common sort much less, by reason that the more part were drowned in the sea, which came not to sight. But of Diamondland, not twenty ships' companies were lost it, but with great puissance they do busk them for Carsey, having with them this goldry Blusco, strangely rescued from his prison-house beyond the tomb, and a great army of the most strang and fell folk that ever I saw or heard speak of. Such is the die of war. Most noble princess, I will speak unto you not by a riddle or dark figure, but plainly that you let not slip this occasion. For I have dreamt an evil dream, and one portending ruin unto Witchland, being in my sleep on the very eve of this same battle, terrified and smitten, with an appearing shape of laxus, amid crying in an high voice and loud, an end, an end, an end of all. Therefore most earnestly I do beseech your majesty, and your noble lord, that was my friend, before that by my venomous treason I lost both you and him and all, take order for your proper safety, and the thing requires haste of your majesties. And this must you do, to fare straightway into your own country of Pixeland, and there raise force. Be you before these rebels and obstinates of Demonland in their proud attempts to strike at Witchland, and so purchase their friendship, who it is very certain will in power invinciable stand before Carsey, or ever Witchland shall have time to put you down. This counsel I give you knowing full well that the power and dominion of the demons standeth now preeminent and not to be withstood. So tarry not by a sinking ship, but do as I say, lest all be lost. One more thing I tell you, that shall haply enforce my counsel unto you, the heaviest news of all. "'Tis heavy news that such a false troker as he is should yet supervive so many honest men," said Corund. The Lady Presmira held out the letter to her lord. "'Mine eyes dazzle,' she said. "'Read thou the rest.' 
Corrand put his great arm about her as he sat down to the table before the mirror and pored over the writing, spelling it out with one finger. He had little book-learning, and it was some time ere he had the meaning clear. He did not read it out. His lady's face told him she had read all ere he began. This was the last news Grow's letter told her. The prince, her brother, dead in the sea-fight, fighting for demon-land, dead and drowned in the sea of Melikafkaz. Presmira went to the window. Dawn was beginning, bleak and grey. After a minute she turned her head. Like a she-lion she looked, proud and dangerous-eyed. She was very pale. Her accents, level and quiet, called to the blood like the roll of a distant drum as she said, "'Suckers of demon-land, late or never.' Corrand beheld her uneasily. "'Their oaths to me and to him,' said she, "'sworn to us that night in Corsi. "'False friends! "'Oh, I could eat their hearts with garlic!' He put his great hands on her two shoulders. She threw them off. "'In one thing,' she cried, "'grow counselleth as well, "'to tarry no more on this sinking ship. "'We must raise forces, "'but not as he would have it "'to uphold these demons, "'these oath-breakers.' We must away this night. Her lord had cast aside his great wolfskin mantle. Come, madam, said he, to bed's our nearest journey. Presmira answered, I'll not to bed. It shall be seen now, O Corrand, if that thou be a king indeed. He sat down on the bed's edge and fell to doing off his boots. Well, he said, every one as he likes, as the good man said when he kissed his cow. There's near dawning. I must be up betimes, and a sleepless night's a poor breeder of invention but she stood over him, saying, It shall be seen if thou be a true king, and be not deceived. If thou fail me here, I'll have no more of thee. This night we must away. Thou shalt raise Pixieland, which is now mine by right. Raise power in thine own vast kingdom of Impland. Fling Witchland to the winds. What care I if she sink or swim? This only is the matter, to punish these vile, perjured demons, enemies of ours and enemies of all the world. We need ride and no journey for that, said Corron, still putting off his boots. Thou shalt shortly see Juss and his brethren before Corsi, with threescore hundred fighting men at's back. Then cometh the metal to the anvil. Come, come, thou must not weep. I do not weep, said she, nor I shall not weep, but I'll not be ta'en in Corsi like a mouse in a trap. I'm glad thou'lt not weep, madam. It is as great pity to see a woman weep as a goose to go barefoot. Come, be not foolish. We must not part forces now. We must bide this storm in Carsey. But she cried, There is a curse on Carsey. Grow is lost to us and his good counsel. Dear my lord, I see something wicked that like a thick dark shadow shadoweth all the sky above us. What place is there not subject to the power and regiment of Garais the king? But he is too proud. We be all too insolent overweeners of our own works. Carsey hath grown too great, and the gods be offended at us the insolent vileness of Carinius, the old dotard Corsus, that must still be at his boosing-can. These and our own private quarrels in Carson must be our bane. Repune not, therefore, against the will of the gods, but take the helm in thine own hand, ere it be too late. Tush, madam, said he, these be but fray-bugs. Daylight shall make thee laugh at em. But Presmira, queening it no longer, caught her arms about his neck. The odd man to perform all perfectly is thou. Wilt thou see us rushing on this whirlpool, and not swim for it, ere it be too late? And she said in a choked voice, My heart is near broke already. Do not break it utterly. Only thou art left now. The chill dawn, the silent room, 
the guttering candles, and that high-hearted lady of his, daunted for an instant from her noble and equal courage, cowering like a bird in his embrace. These things were like an icy breath that passed by and quailed him for a moment. He took her by two hands and held her off from him. She held her head high again, albeit her cheek was blanched. He felt the brave comrade grip of her hands in his. "'Dear lass,' he said, "'I cast me not to be odd with none of these spawn of demon-land. Here is my hand, and the hand of my sons, heavy while breath remaineth us against demon-land, for thee and for the king. But sith our lord the king hath made me a king, come wind, come wheat, we must weather it in Corsi. True is that so, for fame one maketh a king, not for long living.' Presmira thought in her heart that these were fair words. But having now put behind her hope and fear, she was resolved to kick against the wind no more, but stand firm, and see what destiny would do. End of chapter 30